together. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. If you're with us this morning, you don't have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles right now, and they have Bibles. And just uh, wave to them and get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. It's always nice to hear the Word of God, but also to be able to read it uh, as well. And on Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Let's begin in verse 26. And then he, that is Pilate, released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him and took the reed out of his hand and proceeded to strike him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear Jesus' cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. And then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would freshly fill us as we stand before you in this room with the fullness of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that he would take full control of our mind, of our heart and emotions, of our body, Lord, and even of our spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we study this holy ground in the context of holy ground, your Bible, that you would minister to us your heart and your mind, Lord, that you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand how you saw all of these events concerning your son and minister to us, Lord, and let them have the impact and the equipping that they are intended to have in each one of our lives as your followers. And Lord, we pray for each one that doesn't know you today, that stands before you this morning. You are their creator. You love them more than we can ever describe. And we pray that today would be the day that they would surrender to you, make Jesus their Savior, and enter into the life that you have planned for them in this life and fully in the life to come. And we ask it of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning we will examine the physical suffering of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. One of the things that's interesting to me in reading concerning the crucifixion of Jesus and even the events that lead up to it is how 
quickly the account moves. Uh, It's encapsulated in just slightly more than a handful of verses. And you would think that an event like that would be uh, that pages and pages would be given over to it. And yet in God's word, the account is very, very spare, very, very straightforward. So much so that as we read the account, we can almost ask ourselves, what in the world was Jesus thinking about? What was he feeling? What was going on inside of him as all of this physical punishment and torture was being meted out upon him? Is there any revelation in the Bible about what he was feeling while he endured all of this? And thankfully, there is. The book of Hebrews, I think, gives us very priceless revelation into the heart of Christ as he hung upon that cross and even related to the events leading up to it. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame that he was forced to bear As the Son of God and God the Son, perfect in every way, being crucified by his own creation. And the word shame there in the original language, it means shame, it means humiliation, it means disgrace, it means dishonor. And the treatment that Jesus endured on the morning of his crucifixion would have been a shame and a disgrace and a dishonor if it had been meted out on any mere human being, if it had been meted out on you or me. But it was an especial shame. And in the light of who he was and is, even to this day, I think it's important when we read the account of Jesus' crucifixion And sometimes we can become so familiar with the passage that we cease to allow ourselves to identify with it in in a way that um, we always should. And I think it's important to realize that in every single thing that was done to him on the morning of his crucifixion, he felt the pain in his body, in his hands, in his feet, on his brow, On his back, he felt all of that pain just as fully as you and I would feel that pain if that same punishment were meted out upon us. He is fully God, but he's also at the same time fully man. He experienced and endured the same suffering and physical pain that any of us would have. So this morning, let's take what I hope is a very reverential look at his physical humiliation. Let us remember what Jesus had already endured at the hands uh, of the Jewish religious leaders before he was ever turned over to Pilate to be condemned to death. He's already spent a night, a long night of agony without sleep. He's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his trial before the Jewish religious leaders were told that they spat in his face and they beat him 
And others struck him with the palms of their hands, and they mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? And as they stood before the very Son of God, standing right before his face, man after man after man in that assembly, they spat right into his face. Imagine spitting into the face of Jesus. Imagine spitting into anybody's face. Spitting into the face of an innocent person, even a guilty person, but to spit in the face of the Son of God. I mean, it's just absolutely terrible. And then we're told that they covered his face with some kind of a cloth or some kind of a, probably a cloth bag in some way. And they proceeded to beat him. And you picture it in your mind as he's sitting silently, as Isaiah writes, as a sheep before its shears. And as his face is covered now with the cloth, these are not regular men. These are not the depraved, so-called depraved men of the earth. We're talking about religious men. The most highly esteemed religious men in the entire nation of Israel. And they began to punch him. And the disadvantage of having his head covered with the cloth is that at least when your eyes are open, you can see the punch coming. You can prepare for it. You can brace for it. You can move your head in such a way to deflect the force of the blow. As he's beaten punch after punch, he has no idea where the punch is coming from next. No way to defend himself. And so his head jerking in this direction and then in that direction, each one taking their turn. And then they proceeded to heap, mocking upon him, prophesy to us, thou Christ, who is it that struck thee? Demanding that he would identify them by name for which one was doing it. Oh, he knows their name. And I hope they repented of what they did to the Son of God and put their faith ultimately into, in him. And we're told that many other things they spake against him, reviling him. If you're a prophet, tell us who is the one that just hit you. And when they're wicked, absolutely dark and, and terrible frenzy of hatred was fully released upon Jesus. And they let off of him. His face is now swollen and cut. Do you think about it? His own precious blood now mingled with the spit of man. And then later when Jesus was delivered by them to Pilate, Pilate ordered that Jesus be scourged. And scourging in the ancient world was known as the half-death. Because at best, any man who survived the scourging was half dead and half alive as a result of the scourging. And in fact, many, many people never survived the scourging. The whip that was used in the scourging was made up of multiple leather thongs, somewhere between three and nine, small pieces of bone and metal or pottery would have been knotted into each one of the strands, several pieces of these kind of items into each of, of the strands, and including the, the tip 
the end of each strand. And the purpose of all of this was in order that as the lashes would be laid upon the recipient, that that the metal and that uh, and, and the bone and, and the pottery or whatever it might be would grab a hold of the flesh so that when the man that was doing the scourging would then pull the whip away, it was intended to pull away human flesh. These were not novices who proceeded to scourge Jesus. These were men who were trained by Rome to do it. Uh, they uh, enjoyed their work. To be able to take men who had risen up and in their eyes, by virtue of being condemned guilty in some court of law for violating Roman law, then delivered to them. And now they're going to make this person pay a price for having violated that Roman law. I witness historical accounts of scourgings report that a scourging very, very rapidly removed the subject's skin, would expose very shortly the muscles in his back, and not only in his back, because the scourging would occur from the top of his shoulders all the way down to the soles of his feet. So from basically from head to toe or shoulder to toe, muscles would be exposed, tendons would be exposed, Exposed. In some cases, if the scourging went on long enough, vital organs would be exposed. The loss of an eye wasn't uncommon. And none of those things would stop the scourging necessarily. And you think about the pain that would be inflicted upon a person, that they would be beaten or scourged to such a degree that virtually the entirety of their skin on the backside of their body from their shoulders to their feet has been removed. And with the lashes then moving around the body to the lower section of the abdomen or wherever, tearing even in the front part of the body as well. It wasn't unusual for a subject to go into a state of shock due to the loss of blood or because of the pain. The subject was typically stripped and then either tied to an upright pillar so that he was fully stretched out for the scourging to proceed or laid over a pillar and then stretched out in order to allow the Roman soldiers the maximum leverage and the maximum exposure of the victim's body to the lashes in order that those Roman soldiers might produce as much damage as possible. As many as, as few as two, but as many as six men would be engaged in laying the lashes on the person that was being scourged. According to Rome, there was never a limitation that was placed upon the number of lashes that were to be laid upon a victim. The Jews determined to set a limit of 39 lashes. But the Romans did not recognize that limit for themselves. And so they would simply scourge a man just the side of dying. They had no concern for any kind of a long-term health of the victim or the future of the victim. When a victim had been delivered to them to be crucified, they know they're going to die anyway. 
And so the scourging was one that they would determine themselves how long it was to go. They would do that, always stopping short of killing the person uh, in order that he would at least still be alive somewhere between uh, half dead and fully dead so that he could be crucified according to Roman law. But the scourging was only the beginning of the abuse that was meted out by the Roman soldiers. We're told in the passage that we read that these men, very, very much experts in cruelty and in in torture, again, it was their occupation. And I don't think there can be any doubt at all that they took, and, and in fact, the passage reveals it in parallel passages, and the Gospels do as well, that they took even greater pains to make things more miserable for any Jews that were brought before them. And imagine what sick humor must have been provoked within them when they had delivered to them on this morning not only a Jew, but one who claimed to be their king. And here it is, they've seen Rome. They've seen the majesty of Rome. They've seen the pageantry surrounding their emperors, the thrones, the buildings that inspired awe, the bodyguards, the kind of powerful people that surrounded powerful men, all of the servants, all of the pomp, all of the circumstance. And then here stands before them this single, solitary, seemingly friendless, blood and spit covered Jew who it was claimed was the king of the Jews. And so you imagine their amusement. Well, a king can't go around looking like this. Don't Jews know what a king is supposed to look like? And so they stripped him of his clothes and they put a scarlet robe on him. Then they pressed a crown of thorns onto his head through his scalp and skin until thorn met bone. They gave him a reed for a scepter. And then mockingly they proceeded to bow before him while crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. And fascinatingly, Jesus sits completely 100% silent before them through all of the treatment. And I think it's sobering to realize that one day each of those soldiers is going to bow before him again, lest the mocking. And Philippians were told that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I tell you, I never read the passage concerning the treatment of these soldiers, by these soldiers of Jesus, without thinking about that future appointment that they have in front of Jesus. This time to stand before him magnificently robed bowing their knee at the very mention of his name and confessing him to be the king and the Christ that he claimed to be and that they once mocked. And then we're told in verse 30 that they began to spit upon him. 
This is no longer humor, sick or otherwise, that's being poured out on Jesus. Here they're expressing their utter contempt for him. Spitting upon a person in those days was the ultimate insult that you could pay to a person. Even to this day, who would think to, even in the greatest rage of spitting in someone's face, insult to this very day. And so as they spit in Jesus' face, I mean, this is genuine hatred being heaped upon Jesus. And I have no doubt that it was a stored up hatred of the Roman guards for all Jews now being taken out on Jesus. And after this, they tore the reed from his hand, proceeded to beat him upon the head with it, driving that crown of thorns even deeper into his flesh. And then the humiliation went even further than this. We're told in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, concerning the Messiah, where the Messiah declares, I gave my back to them who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. Jesus made no attempt to defend himself in the whole scene, even to the point of them reaching in and pulling out entire sections of his beard. And thus it's no wonder that as Jesus attempted to carry the cross from the praetorium to Calvary, he was unable to do so. They had literally left him more than half dead. And thus a man passing by by the name of Simon from the city of Cyrene was recruited by the Roman soldiers to bear the cross for Jesus. And the fact that Simon was recruited to assist Jesus in the carrying of the cross lets us know that these Roman soldiers had meted out every bit of physical abuse that they could have upon Christ short of killing him before his crucifixion. Cyrene was a city in North Africa, and there was a very large colony of Jews there. And it appears that Simon was a Jewish proselyte, that he was coming as a pilgrim to Jerusalem in order to honor God in the keeping of the feast of Passover. And so he is wanting to honor the Lord and celebrate the Lord in this pilgrimage. And we notice the word in verse 32, compelled, that the soldiers compelled him to carry the cross. They didn't compel Simon out of a compassion for Jesus. They've got a job to do. They've got a prisoner to crucify they got to keep this thing moving and get this job over with. And according to Roman law, a Roman soldier could come up to any person within the Roman Empire, take their spear or their sword, put it upon your shoulder, and you were compelled by Roman law to assist that Roman soldier in any way that they required assistance for a distance of one mile. And that's why Jesus, when he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Go the extra mile. It was that Roman context that was behind all of that, that teaching, a phrase we use to this day. And the fact that Simon was compelled by the Roman soldiers could indicate that there was an initial protest on his part. After all, maybe he has saved his entire life to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem 
to keep this great feast of the Passover. And now it's about to be ruined by drawing him into association with some criminal who's about to be crucified. It's fascinating, I think, as well, that we're told in Luke's gospel that Simon bore the cross after Jesus to Calvary. Jesus led the way with the soldiers, and Simon carried the cross following him. In other words, he watched Jesus. He studied how he was reacting to the whole situation. He saw the physical demands that were upon him even to make the walk to Calvary to be crucified. He witnessed as the women, now those that had probably earlier in the week, now the crowd that had cried out on the day of his triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, save now. This godly crowd, this group that loved Jesus, now is beginning to line the roads as word has got out through the city what it is that Rome and their Jewish religious leaders are doing to him. And we're told that the women are lamenting and mourning for him. And Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the day is coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts that never nursed. And then they will will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green wood, what will be done in that day? In other words, if the Romans dealt with Jesus... In this way, whom they knew to be innocent of any wrongdoing, Jesus was saying, how brutal and how harsh will these same Romans that you have brought in to be a part of this to get rid of me, how brutally will they put down a legitimate revolution against them in less than 40 years? And Jewish history bears out how brutally they did. And that Jesus was communicating if the religious leaders of the Jews went to such a great effort to deliver up their Messiah to death, likening uh, to, to trying to burn a green tree, how great will the judgment be upon them in their spiritual dryness and the spiritually dry followers that follow them. It's not inconceivable that Simon then stayed and watched the crucifixion of the man whose cross he had carried and then witnessed all of the supernatural that surrounded that crucifixion. We know from Mark's gospel that he was the father of two sons named Alexander and Rufus. And the fact that the Apostle Paul later greeted Rufus in his letter to the Romans has led many to think that this contact with Jesus brought the entire family to faith in Christ. And I'll tell you, I don't doubt the possibility of it at all. And then we're told that Jesus was crucified. Verse 33, the site of his crucifixion was Golgotha, place of a skull. The Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of all ways of dying. And Josephus had witnessed many, many crucifixions. Crucifixion was designed to make death not swift, 
That's not what its goal was. It was to make death as painful as possible and as long and as enduring as possible. As it, it was designed to last all the way to and through the ultimate level of mental, physical, emotional endurance of the person that was being crucified. It didn't allow you to die until it had stripped you of everything, of all your mental strength, of all your emotional strength, of all your physical strength. And so it was torture and death all rolled together. And every crucifixion was unique. It became like a sporting event to the Romans because you never knew how long anyone would live. Some would live for hours. Some would live for days. Some would live even for weeks upon the cross. Not multiple weeks, but longer than a week on that cross before dehydration and all would set in, in, their, in their life. And, be, and deter, dependent upon the strength that they had at the time that they were crucified. But they would wait it out and wait it out and wait it out knowing that no matter how strong they were, in mind, in heart, in body, that ultimately crucifixion would win out. Ultimately, death would win out. Not only was the cross one of the cruelest instruments of death ever invented, it was also the most disgraceful. It was designed to humiliate and to shame the person that was crucified in order to deter crime and rebellion. Crucifixion originated in Persia, and its origin came from the fact that the earth was considered to be sacred to the god Ormuzd. And so a criminal couldn't be killed in contact with the ground. He had to be lifted up from the ground so he wouldn't defile the earth, which was considered Ormuzd's uh, property. And from Persia, crucifixion passed to Carthage. In North Africa, from Carthage, the Romans learned of it. And though the Romans used crucifixion for capital punishment, they considered crucifixion to be so inhumane that it was forbidden that any Roman citizen would ever be crucified, whatever their crime. So it was reserved for slaves and foreigners, insurrectionists, and the worst kind of criminals. We notice in verse 34 that they attempted to give Jesus wine mingled with gall, but he refused it. They offered him a drugged wine in order as a painkiller before they proceeded to drive the nails into his hands and into his feet in order to take the edge off of the pain. And Jesus, when he tasted it and realized what it was, he refused to partake of it, wanting to be in full control of his senses upon the cross. And then we're told in verse 35 that they crucified him. The cross is there. The nails are there. The mallet is there. Everything's there. And Jesus was then laid upon that wooden cross. His head would have been laid at the intersection of the cross, the two beams. 
one arm stretched out along the cross beam. His hand would have been opened up to expose the palm. And then in the middle of that open palm, a great iron nail, seven inches long, three-eighths of an inch thick, was then driven by a mallet through his hand and into the wood. Now you think about the pain associated with that. And then his other arm was laid out and the same thing was done to that arm. And then a single great nail was driven through both of his feet into the wood of that cross. And those of you who have ever experienced the nerve endings and the pain of anything that's been gone wrong with a foot or some kind of mangling, I mean, imagine after blow after blow after blow is delivered to drive that nail first through his feet and then to secure his feet to the wood of the cross. I mean, the pain must have just been absolutely explosive. And then the cross was pulled up by ropes as the base of it stood at a hole in the ground until it finally plunked down into the ground, jarring the person that was upon the cross. And wooden shims were then placed between the cross and the dirt in the ground to steady and stabilize, securing the cross in its place. And then began a long, agonizing death. And essentially, death by crucifixion was death by suffocation and heart failure. Because the position of the arms being placed out like that and the weight of the body then upon the whole chest cavity made it very, very difficult for a person who was being crucified to breathe. And in order to breathe, they would need to pull themselves against the nails in their hands and then push against the nail in their feet in order to open up their lungs to take a deep breath, then release and let the breath out, and then to do the thing all over again with each breath. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. How many times do you breathe in six hours? And his back completely opened up, rubbing against that cross until it just became completely blood-covered and flesh-covered, really, in, in all that was happening. And ultimately, the person upon the cross would be forced to breathe in shallower and shallower and shallower because of their inability to be strong enough to draw in deeper breaths. And the shallower their breathing got for a longer period of time, then portions of their lungs and small areas would begin to collapse. This would begin to stress the heart now uh, to make the lungs function properly. And ultimately, over time, if it wasn't the shock and blood loss upon the cross that got to the crucified person, ultimately both their lungs and their hearts would give out under the strain of crucifixion and they would die. By the time Jesus was lifted up on that cross for the six hours that he hung upon that cross, the Bible tells us that he was completely unrecognizable for who he was, not only in his face, were related to his body. In other words, if you had been in Jerusalem just the day before and witnessed him teaching in the area of the temple, and as you listened to him teach the scriptures with great authority and you walked away impacted by his message and you thought to yourself, I will never forget that face for as long as I live, 
I'll never be I'll never forget that face. I'll be able to pick that face out in a crowd for the rest of my life. And on the morning of his crucifixion, if you had walked by the base of that Christ, that cross and looked up at his face, you would not have been able to recognize him as the same man who taught the day before. That's how abused his face was. Worse than any automobile accident, any industrial accident, any maiming, any kind of beating or anything that could ever be meted out upon a person. Isaiah put it this way, just as many were astonished at you, so his, the Messiah's visage, his face was marred more than any man. And many men have known marring. In the course of human history, his visage more than any man and his form, not just his face, but his body more than the sons of men. What caused Jesus to endure such suffering and such shame? And for that, we return again to the very verse that we began with from the book of Hebrews, where we're told looking unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What caused him to endure this? He did it in order to provide us with salvation, in order to be the author and the finisher of our faith. And then to be able to return to the heaven that he had come from in order to provide us with forgiveness of sin and to provide us with salvation. How humbling I think it is to realize that he went through all of that for you and for me personally without a complaint, without a peep. Who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill Christ? Are they the Christ killers? Did the Gentiles, the Romans, kill Christ? Both Jew and Gentile had a significant hand in it. Apart from the Jews, Jesus never would have been crucified. Apart from the Gentiles, Jesus never could have been crucified. But in the truest sense... Jesus was crucified by no one and by everyone. He was crucified by no one in the sense that neither Jew nor Gentile took his life. He laid his life down himself. Jesus declared, no man takes my life, but I lay it down of myself. If Jesus had not been willing to die upon that cross, you could fly to Jerusalem today. And go to Mount Calvary and see him hanging there alive 2,000 years later. He died on that cross because he came to die on that cross and to give his life up for the forgiveness of our sins. He was crucified by everyone in the sense that it was the sins of each and every one of us that put him on that cross in order to provide us with the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that each of us needs. Every one of us had a place 
and that scene of that crucifixion 2,000 years ago. We sing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Would Die For Me. Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you. I honor you. His love for us is so humbling that it makes us love him all the more. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have never put your faith in Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know that Jesus loves you and that he died to provide you with the forgiveness of your sins. I remember as a new Christian seeing a poster. In fact, I think we had it up at the church um, posted when we were downtown. And the poster declared something like this. It wasn't, wasn't the nails that held him to the cross, but his love for you. And that's the truth. That's the truth of the matter. His love for you and for your soul. I think it's amazing to think about how God loved our soul and loves our soul long before we ever have an appreciation for the value of our soul and our life and our eternity. That's what Christ has done for you personally. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done in your life, He went through all of that in order to save you. And now you must do what you alone can do in order to receive the gift that He paid so great a price to provide for you. And that is by believing Jesus as your Savior this morning and giving your life to him, making it his possession. And if you'll do that this morning, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life this morning. Think about that. Think about the privilege of being able to give my life to God and have God Almighty, the creator of the heavens of the earth, in the person of the Holy Spirit, come into my life and save me and change me and make me fit for heaven. What a privilege it is to trust in him. And if you'll do that, God will do that in your life and you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit Begin a relationship with God today that will outlast this life and all of the life to come. And if that's something that you want to do this morning between you and God, there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. It's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving. The old saying goes, salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. It's free only because Jesus did all of the heavy lifting in order to make it free. Come forward this morning after the service and receive God's free gift of salvation that he has provided for you.
If the worship team would come forward right now, I would like us just to be able to close out by offering one final worship song to the Lord this morning before we lead our leave the service. I think it's wonderful to realize that when we worship the Lord, our words and our songs, uh, they go right up to the very throne of God. He listens. He receives. 